Welcome to Ideas at the House, a weekly podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. And I'd like to say I'm coming from Arakwal country uh, on the far north coast of New South Wales, the easternmost part of the continent, and that I'm a Bundjalung and Kali man from, from here, this, this part of the world, northern New South Wales and from southwestern Queensland. I'd also like to say that we still live with the implications of British uh, invasion, with imperialism, uh, with dispossession and ethnocide, and uh, our sovereignty was never ceded. Um, Fwa Hirsch, welcome to Antidote. Thank you so much, Daniel. It's a real joy to be here with you. And thank you for pronouncing my name so beautifully, because <laughs> people struggle with my name, but also sometimes people don't make the effort to pronounce it correctly. And I feel as if you are coming from a cultural context where you appreciate names and acknowledging and holding space in a way that celebrates cultural authenticity. And I, I feel a real connection to that. So thank you. And if you need any introduction, I should say a few words about you and you know your, your extraordinary career. Um, lawyer, journalist, columnist for The Guardian, uh, and your book in 2018, Brit-ish, a real meditation on belonging and identity and uh, kind of a true history, I suppose, um, of the British adventure in the rest of the world. It's part memoir, it's cultural commentary. It was a Sunday Times bestseller. But that title, Brit-ish, and it's, it's the word Brit broken up with those parentheses on the ish. Is that a kind of a, a rumination on... Brit and ish and trying to be something it's not. Like, what is that? What are you trying to do with that particular title? I guess I was deliberately problematizing the idea of Britishness and interrogating what it means to have a British identity. And I did that both from a professional place, you know, a lot of my career as a barrister and as a writer, as a broadcaster, has been exploring the ways in which privilege and access to an idea of legitimacy in Britain is not distributed equally, and it's distributed unequally along very racialized lines. But it's also in a very personal way that I grew up in Britain. My mother comes from Ghana, which like Australia was part of the British empire. Um, my father's father was a Jewish German refugee to Britain. So I had this immigration story on both sides of my family. And even as a small child, I think I inherently sensed the difference in the narrative about who was allowed to assimilate into Britishness and who wasn't. And actually, even though my, my paternal grandfather who came from Germany didn't speak English when he came here, he came here penniless as a child refugee with no English, he was able within a generation to assimilate into Englishness and his children were not asked where they're from or why they were here. They were taken as British and accepted unconditionally to hold their Britishness. My mother's family, who, as I'm sure many Australians will appreciate, coming from a former British colony, had very long and deep ties to Britain, had been educated with a reverence uh, and desire to be accepted by Britishness for generations, had aspired to Britishness, had looked up to Britishness, came to Britain within my mother's memory. She was 12 when she came to Britain. And yet 
they were never allowed to assimilate into Britishness. And the reason is because of their blackness. And I think, you know, I didn't have the language or the space in which to communicate that that discrepancy as a child, but I felt it. I felt very much that both my families came from somewhere else, but one was allowed to just take up space here and one was constantly having to explain itself. Mm. And then being mixed race and growing up with relative privilege as well, I was acutely aware as a child how few people who looked like me entered the spaces I was in, a private school, Oxford University. And I could sense the unfairness that there were so many people who looked like me, but they were somewhere else. And also that within my space, it was regarded as socially unacceptable to even own my blackness, to talk about my heritage was made people uncomfortable. People preferred to say they didn't see race, everyone's the same. And you know, there is such a cognitive dissonance there when you as a young black girl are constantly being racialized by the society you're in. People asking questions about your name, your hair, where you're from, why you're here. And then at the same time, people say that they don't see race. You can really live and experience how this country, Britain, is racialized from its core, but yet nobody wants to have the conversation. Nobody is comfortable with acknowledging it. It's swept politely under the carpet. And I think that in a way is a metaphor for the entire British relationship with its empire, with its history. And I knew that my entire being was a result of that history. And I, I couldn't be complicit in that silence and that denial and that erasure. So I really wrote my book and it felt like a really radical thing at the time because I was coming from an environment where these things just were not talked about, even within my own family. I wrote my book because I needed to make sense of it for myself, but also because I just don't believe that any country can have a sustainable future where it is not honest about its origins, about its demographic makeup about its inequalities and inequities. And if you ignore these things, they just fester and become divisive, toxic forces in so many ways. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing in many nations at the moment. And it, it stems from the original sins of violence against indigenous people of colonization and empire. But now it's being perpetuated for each new generation by silence and denial. And I can't change the history and I don't want to, I want us to see it and acknowledge it and begin to unpick the very real and current implications that it has for our generation. And that is about whether the British Empire still exists. I mean, it has been softened into this thing they call the Commonwealth of Nations. But for you, does the British Empire still exist? I mean, if, if you want to be provocative, I sometimes describe the Commonwealth as Empire 2.0 because there was no moment where Britain said, we did this, we stole your land, we murdered people, we exploited your resources in deeply unfavorable terms, we co-opted your people into the, the wage economy in, in, in an exploitative way, we perpetuated violence and theft, and now we're really sorry and we would like to redistribute all the benefits of that project and start again as friends in a Commonwealth of Nations. That never happened. The empire simply morphed into the Commonwealth and all of the histories and battles and acts of resistance and losses that were sustained in that empire were never acknowledged by Britain. And it almost feels as if the act of joining the Commonwealth 
has an unconditional term that the members will also not discuss that. So I feel as if we're all bound in this kind of complicity of silence. And it's been really interesting if you see a country like Barbados, for example, which recently stated its intention to leave the Commonwealth because it was insisting on demanding reparations for the slavery, which is the foundational story of the nation that is Barbados today. Um, and Britain is currently refusing to acknowledge those demands for reparations from nations founded on British slavery and the genocide of indigenous people before the African slave trade. And Mia Motley, the premier of Barbados, saying very clearly that it was not compatible for Barbados to continue to belong to the Commonwealth with all the silence and erasure that that involves, whilst also being ignored for its incredibly thoughtful and evidence-based plea for reparations. And I think I find that fascinating because it, it speaks to me about the difficulty in doing both and enjoying membership of this club whilst also being true to your history and the injustices that are ongoing. And I think, you know, does the empire still exist? There was not a moment anyone can point to where the empire ended, where the wrongs were righted. And if you also look at the structure of empire, there was no way Britain could, I mean, it's this small nation in the North Sea, there was no way Britain could actually summon the physical force, the military force, the violence to subdue the entire empire. The empire was based in so many ways on complicity of capital, of individual groups who were who benefited from empire, from exploiting local grievances, but ultimately from conditioning the population of the colonies to believe in empire without the mental conditioning without winning hearts and minds, the empire couldn't have existed. And, and, and that mental colonization is something that fascinates me because I see it in my own family. You know, my mother was born in the empire. She was born in the Gold Coast, it became Ghana when she was six years old. And she was taught that she was from a savage place, that her background was one, um, that was uncivilized and that progress was becoming more like British people, adopting the British language, practicing Christianity, aspiring to Britishness. And that act of mental colonization is replete throughout the empire and it's not something that ends. It's not like a border that you can change on a map or uh, armed forces you can withdraw. It's something that is inherited intergenerationally. And I certainly was raised by somebody who had that conditioning. And I see people of my generation raising their children with that conditioning. and so the very deep psychological structures of empire absolutely still exist. And not only do they exist, but you are rewarded for displaying them. And we see that in Britain, that if you show your loyalty to the narrative of empire, if you welcome the idea, for example, that your success should be rewarded with an OBE, a, 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 a reward explicitly named after the empire, if you are a good immigrant and you show patriotism to that story and that history, if you celebrate it, you are rewarded. Similarly, in Britain today, if you talk about the true history of empire, about its multiplicitous history and its violence, you are punished, you're penalised, you're ostracised, you're told if you don't like it here, you should leave, and you're not a good citizen, you're not a good immigrant, that you're problematic and troublesome. And I say that from personal experience because there is a whole right-wing faction of the press, and I'm not talking about rogue QAnoners, I'm talking about editors of newspapers, columnists in some of our most prestigious publications, TV anchors who host the most popular programs in Britain, who will regularly say that somebody like me is not entitled to belong here if I don't toe the line of gratitude for the history of empire. And I think 
that's the reality. And so when I see those dynamics, I see that the empire absolutely still exists and that people feel entitled to celebrate it and penalize those who don't fall in line. And this whole question of, you know, I don't see race, which I can see is so prevalent in, 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 in Britain. Um, this whole question of, you know, don't, don't talk to me about race because I don't see it. Here it's a little different here in Australia. I think uh, there's still that you, you're considered, it's considered to be very impolite to raise questions of race um, for, a, for a person of colour, for an Aboriginal person to talk about race with, um, you know, people who aren't um, is considered to be impolite. And you don't start those conversations um, unless you want to fight. But these conversations need to be had in, in, in order for us to, well, we can't divorce ourselves from the history of colonialism. We can't, it's a luxury for us to pretend that these things didn't happen and to not see race because, you know, our very existence is, is racialized. I mean, even if there was a benefit in everyone assimilating into a kind of default colonial culture of whiteness and Britishness, the burden of that is distributed so unequally, you know, and I know from being in Australia, there are people who do aspire to Britishness, who do feel a, a nostalgia or an emotional connection to Britishness. And there are people who know that their personal family history is one of genocide by the British towards their ancestors. And the idea that everybody should assimilate into the same narrative is, is really, um, it's, it's unbelievably violent, actually. And it, it's quite a profound thing if you think about it, that you are not allowed to take up space in a way that owns your identity. You're supposed to shrink yourself, to downplay your heritage, to make other people around you feel comfortable in the denial that they enjoy inhabiting. And you know, I'm not Aboriginal, but I can relate to that because for me, it was that I was not allowed to draw attention to my blackness. The best thing I could do was just pretend it didn't exist my, you know, I wrote in my book about how there was an instant where my school friends, in what they felt was a real act of kindness, said to me, don't worry, we don't even see you as black. And the message that I received very subliminally at that age was that if I wanted to get along and not be disruptive and have friends and a successful life, I just needed to make it disappear. And that is a, you know, and any psychologist would be able to explain this better than me. It's that act of real psychic destruction to... Mm have to deny who you are, the consequences of that can be incredibly dangerous. And yet we see that on a societal level, that many of us are expected to just be quiet and not draw attention to this thing that is not wrong. It's something that is incompatible with the false narratives that others are enjoying. And I just think that, you know, for a child to bear the, the psychological burden of that is a, is a really terrible thing. And I I sometimes wonder how people are okay with it, you know, how people are okay with being complicit in that. And I think often the answer to that question is that they haven't thought about it. They haven't thought about it and their privilege of being part of what they feel is a majority culture is that they don't need to see these things and they don't need to think about these things. And I think that's why actually in my work, I've shifted a bit recently. I, I used to really unpick my identity and my heritage and my story and others from what we call minority backgrounds. And actually, over time, I've realized that we know our story because we're not allowed to not know it. We're so conscious of it and we are othered in ways that constantly draw attention to it in ourselves. But the, the people who don't do the work and don't think about these things are white people or people who are racialized as white 
do have, as you've said, the luxury of moving through a world in a way that they take up space that is authentic to who they feel they are without having to think about how that impacts others. And, you know, in the case of Australia, it just seems so extreme to me because it's your land. It's your land. It's your nations. You're actually on the terrain where these acts happen, where this history played out in such a violent way, in such a tragic way. And to not see it there, it, it feels like a kind of a next level of denial and erasure is required. It's, uh, it's, it's extraordinary, the level of denial and the, the suppression. I mean, that history is suppressed in so many different ways. And, uh, you know, I, I want to talk about how, you know, one of the other things that, that really interests me about a conversation with you is that I also have uh, heritage from, not that you do from the West Indies, but I have history from Africa that comes via the West Indies, via a history of of slavery, as far as I know, um, and so part of me is part of me is in Nigeria. Um, I can't say like you that that Africa was born in me, but I have Nigerian heritage via St Vincent and the Grenadines in, in the British West Indies, and the way you in the book talk about you know sugar production and the and St Kitts and Nevis being the centre, the kind of um, the core of the modern British economy and understanding how all these economic forces play out in, in, in this idea of empire is extraordinary. The depth of your analysis um, is, is, is really, is, is quite incredible. When you went to, to Nevis and, and St Kitts in the Caribbean and you realised that and you went to all those sites and saw those former, you know, slave houses and the, the holding cells where they kept slaves, what kind of feeling were you left with? Well, thank you for saying that about my research. And I would just say that these are, are the, the facts that couldn't be more mainstream. This is the, the bulk of the British economy in the 18th and 19th century. At one point came from sugar cultivation mm -hmm. by enslaved Africans in the West Indies. And yet now it's regarded as this incredibly niche specialist subject. You have to go just physically to quite extreme lengths to find this material. It's been just pushed to the periphery in such an extreme way. But, you know, the thing about the Caribbean, and it's really interesting that your heritage comes from um, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, which I also know quite well, is that when you go, for example, to St. Kitts and you see the holding cells where enslaved Africans were kept, you are not on the site of a kind of Holocaust memorial or a site of remembrance. You are in a place where people from Britain go to get married. This is paradise. This is how it has been recast. Go to paradise, have your wedding, enjoy cocktails at sunset. You will be served by genial black people with white gloves who will not ask you any difficult questions, will not make you feel uncomfortable in any way. And you can go to the site of this violence and still forget about it. Not only forget about it, but celebrate this paradise. And I just find that you know, you kind of couldn't make it up. If you were writing fiction, it would just seem too ridiculous that the place where this played out is now a place that's described as paradise. And, you know, there was a, an expression that one historian said that Britain had a deep south, just like the, the United States had a deep south, but it was in the Caribbean. It was just out of sight, out of mind. The same things that happened in the US, because British people often regard slavery as this terrible thing Americans did. 
Um, whereas they were abolitionists. This is now the narrative. Britain abolished slavery. <laughs> the fact that it was practicing it for about 300 years beforehand is neither here nor there. But the place where the evidence of that was, the plantations, the brutality, you can still see the sites where slaves were hanged for refusing to work, where people dropped dead. I mean, the life expectancy on some plantations in America was about seven or eight years before people died for overwork, from overwork. Children sexually abused and tortured. I mean, it's re really very extreme. And we're not talking about anecdotal cases, millions and millions of people. And you can go there now specifically to enjoy an experience of paradise, no reference to the history. And I find that remarkable. And actually the places people go to get married are plantations, the great house of a plantation, the steps of a plantation. These are now celebrated as heritage buildings that um, are joyful. And I, I just, you know, I try to imagine an equivalent site of the Jewish Holocaust being treated in that way. And I think it's incredibly powerful that you can go to the sites of the Holocaust in the Second World War and actually sit with the horror and the trauma of what happened under the Nazi regime. I think that's so important. Nothing like that exists for our history. It has been erased, downgraded, and now as if, you know, to, you couldn't devise a better insult to our ancestors. It is now a place where people go to celebrate whiteness. And I just think that is really very problematic. You begin uh, the book British, uh, and you've just returned from Senegal, and you've been you've been working there, and you say something really fascinating, and that is, you're sitting around with all your friends, you know, politely drinking, probably drinking chai. I don't know what you're drinking, um, <laughs> but just sitting sitting around in a in a in a, in a semicircle, and um, you say something words along the lines of. I had left Britain to leave being British. I want you to talk about that idea of exile and return. What happened when you were in Senegal and in other parts of Africa where you where you lived and worked? And then what happened when you came back? Thank you for that question. I'm, I'm working, there's a word that I can't quite um, lose at the moment that just keeps surfacing when I think about this, which is stranding. And I think that for somebody like me, who is British, you know, I've spent my life in Britain. I have been formed through British cultural, educational, historic forces. And because I was never allowed to feel that I belonged in Britain unconditionally, I was always being asked where I'm from, or if I said things people didn't like, that I should go back there. I thought that there was a place I could go where I could solve those problems. And I think it's a, a mistake that many young people make, that identity is a place. If you can just find that place, you will find yourself whole, your belonging will be intact. You can just, there is a culture you can assimilate happily into. And in my personal case, I had to travel quite a lot before I, it dawned on me that it just doesn't work like that. And actually identity is a journey. And a lot of that journey is making peace with the things that don't necessarily make sense to you or that aren't whole. And I went to West Africa because I wanted to be African. I wanted to fully reject this aspiration to be closer to whiteness and closer to Britishness. And it took me living in several African countries before I realized how British I was. And that was painful for me because Britishness was something that I associated with my oppressor. And that's partly because there wasn't really a narrative about Britishness that was in, that included someone like me. 
Britishness was perceived as a white identity, and it still is, and that's still why people who aren't white are often singled out and asked, even if in amicable terms, where, where are they from? Where are you really from? Whereas white people who often have fascinating immigration stories in Britain, you know, Viking, Celtic, Jewish ancestors are very rarely singled out and asked where they're from. So it's not because only people of colour have an immigration story, it's because we don't look British because Britishness is white. And this is the mentality many people have. So I thought there was a place I could go where I could fix that. And it was painful to realise actually how British I am. Um, and, you know, I come back to that word stranding because I think that, you know, for the descendants of empire, we are left in this imperial motherland that is hostile to us, that rejects us, that others us, that is unjust towards us, that denies our history, that seeks to shrink us, that requires us to assimilate into the very culture that was violent towards our ancestors. But we don't really have anywhere else to go. And that's not to say you can't go and live in an African country. And I've lived actually several times in West Africa and feel a really powerful, deep spiritual connection to West Africa. And I hope to always have a presence there and a role there and be useful there. But no amount of spending time there will change how British I am. And, you know, and, and I'm somebody who can name my Ghanaian heritage. There are many mixed race, black, other ethnic minority British people who no longer have a country of reference. You know, they're fourth, fifth generation um, antecedents from different parts of the former empire. They haven't got a place they can go to. And yet Britain is actually increasingly hostile to them. Is becoming more racialized. It's becoming more extreme, um, and it is a it is a kind of stranding that that we are people who do not have an obvious motherland, a, a land of our ancestors to go to, and I think that that's a, that's a reality that we live with, and I think everybody makes sense of it in different ways, and I can't tell people how to navigate that for themselves. But one thing I do know is that you cannot find that peace if you don't interrogate and understand the history that brought you there, how important that is, both on a personal level and also as a British person, I genuinely believe that Britain is a fragile nation because it refuses to confront its past. You cannot build a nation that is forward-looking, optimistic, that is inclusive of new generations, that cultivates innovation and ideas and diversity that, that is absolutely essential to compete in the global economy, apart from anything else with other nations that are getting that right. Britain can't do that because it's fragile. Because when confronted with basic historically agreed facts about its past, it loses it. And there are so many examples of that. And I worry about Britain that it's becoming a nation that will self-destruct if it doesn't confront these facts. And I think the same could be said. You could easily transpose what you just said, your argument there, to 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 Australia as well. I want to pick up on two really important voices, and those are the voices of, of James Baldwin and Ralph Ellison, the African American writers, and they both said something the same, independently of each other, and that was, and you recounted in the book, this just this simple phrase, "Know from whence you come." Ellison said it slightly differently, but that's you can hear James Baldwin saying it, know from whence you came. How important is it to know, you know your own story, you've, you've, you've interrogated it deeply and, and in finding all these pointers, markers of, of empire and of, of, of 
the psychological scars of of not just slavery but um, the Ashanti Wars in 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 your great grandmother's uh, story, how she was made a refugee uh, by the actions of Robert Baden Powell, the leader of the Scout movement. I mean, you you deeply interrogated your own story in order to understand the big picture. And I think that is a psychological and almost spiritual journey that you need to go on as a person with a history. Everybody has a history. Everybody has roots. Everybody has ancestors. You need to understand that. And I think for me, exhausting the process of that research and that connection was actually necessary to give me the confidence to realize that the really important thing is what we build. And you can't have the confidence to be a tree that that grows a trunk and branches if you don't have roots. But it doesn't mean that it's for the sake of sitting with your roots. You need to grow, you need to branch. And I think, you know, when I think about people of African heritage, and I, I read a lot of the work of Pan-Africanists, who were the ones who led the African continent to independence from the empire, who really believe that there is no viable future for African people throughout the world, unless there is a strong, thriving African continent, that people who are divided, who are trying to assimilate into hostile spaces can never really thrive, can never build something that is authentic to who they are. If you even look about at education systems, and there's increasing research that shows that education takes place in a cultural context. Children who are educated in a cultural context that isn't relevant to them, that isn't authentic to their experience, that alienates them, cannot thrive in education, cannot do justice to their intellect and their ideas and their ability. So the act of looking back is so that we can design something that does us justice moving forward. And I think that is the real project. And in a way, this is the background work so that you can then do the real work. And, and this is actually really, for, perhaps for me, the most destructive consequence of empire. Instead of looking forward and working out what to build, we're still arguing about what happened before. We're being made to fight for basic acknowledgement about our story. And that should be given. That's just the starting point. That's not the work. And it's a distraction, you know, and to quote another um, great African-American writer, Toni Morrison, this is all a distraction. It keeps us focused on things that should not be being argued about. These are matters of historical fact. These happen within living memory, many of them. They are documented. And yet we're arguing about them. We're having to try to persuade people that, to believe that they happened. We are having to campaign to own our identities, our experience, our cultural hinterlands. And that is the result of empire. That is the ongoing violence of empire. It is that constant distraction and that constant reduction of our talents and ideas to something very basic and mundane and actually you know, just rationally speaking, not even worth arguing about, it's so obvious. And I think that's a dilemma, right? I do the work of arguing it and entering into that distraction because I needed to make peace with it. And I needed to understand for myself actually how manifestly obvious it is. But I'm also very clear that if I spent my whole life having those arguments, that would be to give in really to the design of empire, which is to constantly keep us down. Mm. I mean, this whole question of identity is one that we can become endlessly locked in, and there are, I guess, there's a, there's a, there's, there has to be an out, a, a point at which, and as Tony Morrison, I think she was talking to a group of graduating students at Portland, Portland yes, State Portland, University, yeah. 
Yeah. And those are those remarks. Racism is a distraction. Um, you will, they will tie you up. Uh, you will be tied up proving that you had a language. You will be tied up proving you had kings. They will always find something to tie you up. And all that intellectual labor in trying to prove who you who you are and where you come from and your right to exist, that is also a distraction. Exactly. And she she also in that lecture has talked about how, you know, in her case, slavery in, in the US is probably the most documented crime against humanity ever. They wrote down every single person. They wrote down their weight, their hair color, their size. They 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 documented them in the way that you keep inventories of stock and yet we're still arguing about that the fact that that happened and the fact that people inhabit that history and that they've inherited that trauma and that the the unfairness of that is inherited and it is such a distraction um and it's not to say that we don't need to learn it and we don't need to speak the truth about it but you know, as you said, it's an endless cycle. And, you know, anyone who's watched some of my previous TV debates will see how that works, that I sat in spaces on mainstream TV and was put in a position of having to persuade my colleagues that I was allowed at the table, that I was entitled to have a voice, that I was entitled to have an experience from my life, my lived experience had validity. And, you know, it's a, it was an interesting experience to be in quite a hostile space making those points because many people approach me off screen in real life and say how much they relate to that and how much it gave them courage and energy. But at the same time, you know, I can't help but feel that we're all just supporting each other in the distraction and actually legitimizing those spaces is ultimately not serving us, that you are fanning the flames because it's endless and it's actually becoming entertainment now. You know, you put a racist person on TV and then you put an anti-racist person and you let the racist person tell the anti-racist person that they have no right to have a story. And I just, I think I had a kind of optimism and perhaps a naivety that that was a useful conversation because it was educating the racist person. And now I realize that some people are not trying to be reached. And actually, I think there is a huge cynicism in the political and media landscape now that that is an endless conversation that drives clicks, that is entertaining for people. It's not designed to create progress. It's not designed to change anything. And, you know, I think we all have to hold ourselves to account for how we navigate that. And it's difficult because often those are the spaces that are made available to you. And the reality is, you know, when you look at the structures of the media and political landscape, the literary world, any of the above, the gatekeepers are still white, are still male, are still privileged, are still people who are not necessarily personally invested in seeing structural change. And that is a problem. You talk about in, um, in British, your relationship with your partner, Sam, and the differences between you both. You know, you, you had this quite privileged, dare I say, privileged upbringing in, in Wimbledon and Yet Sam Sam grew up in Tottenham, and he was steeped in his his Ghanaian heritage, and you know. But you say you felt impoverished uh, compared to him in terms of your identity. How do you sit with it now? Do you in in writing this book, you know, some years ago now, but in writing this book and 
where are you where are you at today on that question? Do you still feel impoverished? I mean, I, I included his story actually initially initially reluctantly because I wanted to show that and I wanted to be very careful to demonstrate that there is I don't have a monopoly over the black experience. I don't have a monopoly over the descendant of empire experience. You know, I'm not claiming some kind of uh, spokesperson for black people, for people of color, for minoritized communities. I was just trying with all my scholarship and integrity to be truthful about my experience. And I wanted to really show that there are so many differences in the experience of being black and British. And actually that story was just had layers because it, in a, it was very bizarre coincidence that we came from the same place, you know, the same village in Ghana. And yet our lives were so different because of the ways we were incorporated into the British class system, um, geographically, socially, financially, and that also in a way we were almost culturally as divergent as two people from opposite parts of the world because class is such a powerful force in Britain and it's really important to talk about that and I think people sometimes misunderstand this conversation as kind of claiming some monopoly over unfairness if you're black or that you know if you're super privileged um, and of colour you have the, the, the most suffering of anyone and you know I mean these competitions of Unfairness are never designed to be anything other than reductive, but that's another distraction that tends to happen. Uh, but also I was genuinely fascinated in how that happens and how Britain takes people from the former empire, actually often from similar circumstances and brings them down the socioeconomic ladder through the forces of racism and the structure of the economy here. That, you know, it's very common in Britain to meet people who have master's degrees, PhDs in their country of origin who work as cleaners or taxi drivers in the UK. Um, I think I had an identity crisis growing up, you know, and I've intellectualized it, I've researched it. But the truth is that I was just a young person in crisis. And a huge part of that stemmed from my desperation to have access to information about my story and my family and to make sense of what I knew of my heritage as, a, as an African woman compared to what I saw represented in the British press and the British story, which was this, this was a basket case continent of violence and destruction and greed. Whereas my experience of this family whose culture was incredibly rich and ancient and literary and all of these things that were never allowed to exist in the mainstream narrative. And then on top of that, being mixed race and feeling like I wasn't sure if I had the legitimacy to even claim my blackness because I was also half white and the complications that that creates. And I think, you know, for me writing the book, I knew that I just wanted to reach that younger me, that person who was in crisis and didn't have the language to even express that, didn't have the facts, the history to understand how it came to be, didn't have access to the writers and thinkers from previous generations who've already done the work on setting out how we can build and make things different. And if I could reach that younger person, then in a way, my whole journey was worthwhile. And I think that has been the most fulfilling thing about the book, that younger me's all over the place, young people with similar questions and longing and confusion have said that they found it really helpful in structuring their thinking and directing them as to how they can turn that frustration into something constructive. Um, and where they can get answers. And I, now I think I've turned my attention more towards the structural question of why this country continues to suppress 
this information continues to lie, continues to miseducate young people, you know, a whole new generation of young people going through schools being willfully miseducated about what Britain is, what its history is, why we are a nation that looks the way we do. So diverse, so many languages, so many communities, many of them because these were parts of the empire that were crucial to Britain's survival and now are kind of made to seem like these rogue, uh, peripheral, random nations that are seeking to somehow extract something from Britain, which is beyond ironic. So I'm interested in giving a new generation the tools to navigate this so that they can also come up with answers. And I think until the state takes that upon itself, which seems far off right now, I have to say, as writers, as creatives, as teachers, whatever we are, we have to find our way of contributing to that project. And so this is my attempt to make my contribution. There was a really important um, kind of project run a few years ago about the legacies of of slavery and a very detailed investigation into mm. the the compensation that was paid to slave owners in the uh, after the abolition of slavery. We're talking millions of pounds, astronomical amounts of money in today's terms. Um, so the slave owners were paid, you know, a certain price for a slave. Uh, by the British taxpayer, but then also the slaves had to uh, subsist for another four years and kind of meet the other half of that that bill, the 40, 40 million pound bill. Um, we have to go back to every single um, event and know what happened precisely. But those the the fact that the British economy and all of the inherited wealth in Britain um, could, you know, pretty squarely be traced back to um, the greatest, you know, what is the greatest atrocity uh, in human, one of the greatest atrocities, if not the greatest atrocity in human history, that's the trafficking of 12 million Africans from Africa against their will across uh, the British Empire. So just knowing that, that's, just knowing that's that is an incredible thing to know. That study you refer to, it was so interesting because it also pointed out how many of the families who received that compensation from slavery are still the most wealthy families in Britain. And you really see a pattern. And this is, you know, we all know wealth is inherited intergenerationally. And poverty is also inherited intergenerationally. And you know, back to the Caribbean reparations claim, this is the basis of those nations. I think it's 15 nations in the Caribbean making a claim, not based on individual reparations, but for the nation they are able to quantify the cost to the health. You know, people don't know that Barbados is the amputation capital of the world because of hypertension and diabetes that results from having a population that was force-fed on the thing they were being forced to cultivate, sugar. That today, those health problems are extreme. In the 1930s, the British Prime Minister said that the Caribbean was the slum of the empire and it was being run that way to the uh, prevent the local population getting ideas above their station, that these were people who were enslaved and then deliberately kept in poverty. There was not a nail was being manufactured in the entire Caribbean, according to Britain itself. These were not nations that were designed to then go on and have a successful future in manufacturing and innovation or tech. They were nations that were designed to create wealth for Britain, for rich British people who are still rich as a result. And I think those dots have just not been joined up. There's been work that's done recently in the National Trust, that the National Trust, which owns many stately homes and grand estates in Britain, began a project of honestly documenting 
how the money to build those estates was acquired. Many cases, not surprisingly, through the slave trade. It was completely invisible. You go to these beautiful country homes, and incredible gardens and lakes and mazes and Palladian architecture, and there is no reference. And this is how, over time, British people have had this idea that Britain has nothing to do with slavery. Slavery was over there. Britain is here. This is genteel, polite society. When, and it's invisible. And therefore, when you introduce the history of slavery, they think, well, that's not, got nothing to do with us. Um, and the National Trust trying to bring, I think quite gently, some of the historical facts into those properties, uh, only to be threatened by the government that they may have their funding reduced or cut if they continue that project of honesty. So this is the climate that, when I say you are penalised for telling the truth, it's not a metaphor, it's literal. And and these are baby steps. So the baby steps are being met with that level of hostility. And I think that, um, I think it just shows how much work is needed to educate British people about themselves, because you have also the people who receive compensation for the abolition of slavery, but also many ordinary people, teachers, grocers, um, market traders, if they had a few extra pounds, would invest them in a slave ship. That was uh, a high return investment that ordinary people could group together and make. And it's so ironic when people say that someone like me is trying to erase British history. It's the contrary. This is British history, and I think we should learn it. Uh, I think we should understand it and see how much a part of Britain this history is. And also, it's important to say there was resistance. There were mill workers in Britain who went on strike in solidarity with enslaved people. There is incredible history of class rebellion, working class solidarity, uh, protest movements in Britain that have also been forgotten because to acknowledge those would be to acknowledge the wrong that they needed to resist. So this isn't somehow an anti-British narrative. This is Britain. This is These are the things that Britain did. And I think that we need to know them. And I also think that the people whose destinies were changed by Britain's decision to colonize a significant part of the world also deserve Britain being honest about that. And I also am heartened by the fact that people in other countries aren't waiting for Britain to discover its capacity for honesty. They're just getting on with doing the work and the acknowledgement themselves. And I think, you know, it, maybe it would be appropriate in this kind of reverse colonization that the former colonies are the ones who lead Britain in actually discovering intellectual integrity and uh, an, uh, an appetite for truth. And I would absolutely welcome that if that's how it happens. Yes, so, many, so much to think about and so many resonances here in, in, in thinking about how Australian history is replete uh, with this direct line to what was happening in London, almost being telegraphed out. Australia wouldn't exist. The the separate colonies would never have been federated into, you know, the nation state without um, without assent from London, without Queen Victoria's signature. It's everywhere. And I wanted to pick up just, I just wanted to pick up just very, I'm actually near a place called um, Byron Bay. And when Cook passed the coastline here, he observed my ancestors, um, you know, in the bush. And Joseph Banks was writing in his diary and he said, it's amazing, these fellas, they don't, they don't even see our ship. They don't, you know, they're in the neighbourhood of such a remarkable thing and yet they go about their business and don't see us. And I always go back to that as a kind of beautiful moment of just like, you're on your way, like what you do is your business, but we're going 
we're just going about, we're living our lives. We're in, you know, we're, we're in bliss. Just keep going, just keep going. Um, but that's all they could, they could, they could only remark upon how, um, how oblivious we were, uh, to this incredible, <laughs> remarkable thing that was floating past. Now, if I've spent a lot of time talking about the book British, but you've done a, a, a range of things. You've been a, a guardian for the journal, uh, for, sorry, a guardian, a, a journalist for the guardian. Uh, you've also been a podcaster and, uh, you work with Samuel L. Jackson on a television series called enslaved. This kind of public history where we, where we make direct, I guess, interventions through the mass media. Do you see this? And, and even the book is an example of this. Is this the way forward, do you think, in terms of teaching the uh, an honest history? I'm not a teacher and I'm not an education professional, so I wouldn't hold myself out as somebody who has any authority on the best way of educating people. I think my approach is more that I just try to tell the truth with the information, the perspective, the resources that I have. And I'm interested in reaching people in the ways that have been effective at reaching me, really. So I read a lot, a lot of my understanding about identity, about blackness, about culture, about history has come from writers who reach me. I mean, you've mentioned three of them, Ralph Ellison, James Baldwin, Toni Morrison. There are so many more. That's been a huge part of my education. And I think as I grew older and realized and began to understand that the curriculum, the official national curriculum, the programs I was watching on primetime TV were not speaking to the stories that I knew were there, the histories that I felt I started to self-educate as I think many of us do when we're let down by the formal education system in that way. Uh, TV has been another source of information for me. I love documentaries. I love film. I love drama. Um, I am really interested in how I can use my resources and creativity and energy to reach people in a way that speaks to them. So I'm not really prescriptive about it, but uh, it's authentic to my understanding of what helps. <laughs> and I enjoy telling stories and I enjoy communicating people and listening to people and learning from people. And so I've kind of naturally become, a, I suppose, a public historian in that way and a broadcaster. Um, and I hope throughout my life I'll keep evolving as I learn more about what works and what we need. Um, so working with Samuel L. Jackson was not something I ever expected to be doing when I was a practicing barrister 10 years ago. Um, but that's just how life is. And they, that was an example, I think, of how when you do give of yourself and your own story, it does help reach people because obviously he has a huge following as a, as a movie star. But he has never really spoken publicly about his story, about his ancestors from the deep south in the US about his Gabonese heritage in Central Africa and making that journey and that connection, which was difficult and painful and emotional for him as it would be for anyone to recount that history of enslavement and trafficking was a really, I think, generous thing to do to share with others. And it, it, it resonated with people, it reached people and it encouraged and inspired other people to go on the same journey. And that's, you know, as a writer who's attempted that in my own way, it's very humbling when people feel supported in doing that. And I think that one thing I've learned is that there are so many of us who are shaped by this history. So many of us of all races, of all generations. I hadn't realized how many white British people are the products of empire, you know, that they came from very working class or underprivileged backgrounds. Their 
parents found opportunity in the empire or their grandparents, and that was how they were able to achieve social mobility. So it's also not pejorative, it's really understanding this, but being brave enough to see unfairness or disadvantage or violence where it happened. But the lens is really one of wanting to understand. And I think we're depriving all of us of the opportunity of knowledge. And that to me is, is it's just an anathema to everything I know and believe in. Now tell me about the, the character of your, your grandmother, Ophelia Joyce. She's very much a character in the book <laughs> and I yeah. feel her presence. What does she make of your kind of, you know, you've, you've moved on from this question of identity. You, 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 you kind of thinking much, much larger now and much, much broader terms, but what did she make of your questing? Um, this questing of yours in terms of identity, did she ever kind of just say, what are you doing girl? <laughs> yeah, all the time. I think she's a woman of a certain generation. She turned, oh gosh, I hope I get strong. She turned 93 recently. She lives wow. just, oh, I can almost see where she lives from where I'm sitting. Um, she, and I think this often happens, she's the one who made the journey. She was born in the, the empire. She brought her children to the UK shortly after independence. She was that first generation of 20th century imperial migrants who experienced, I will never know how hard it was for her to live here in the early 1960s and the, the, the hardship and the hostility and the ignorance she would have confronted and how much of a pioneer she was. And she worked as a midwife and a nurse, um, but she rarely talks about it. And I think there is an aspirational quality to immigration. Anybody who moves is because they have the energy and the uh, imagination to see a better life, more opportunity somewhere else. And they're so involved in that project. And that project is so demanding that I think they often don't have the luxury of interrogating identity. And, and I'm really clear about that, that if it weren't for the sacrifice and the work of my grandmother and my grandfather and my parents, I wouldn't have the luxury or the education or the platform to do the work I do. So it's, and, and of course, life being life, they are not sitting around having those conversations. They're like, just get on with it. Just get on with it. You know, we gave you advantage so that you could use it. Um, but I think that is progress. It's progress when you give your children enough security that they can then interrogate things that maybe you wouldn't have been able to because you were in an insecure position um so yeah but she does does tell me i do talk a bit too much sometimes maybe and <laughs> she's not a big fan of being provocative so she is definitely a person of a certain generation but at the same time to have been a professional woman in the 1930s in the gold coast was she was one of a very extreme minority and was a, a real pioneer herself so in, at some moments, she's willing to own that she was she had herself a bit of a rebellious and pioneering spirit. We've only got one minute left, but you do talk about a friend of yours who's a, a black academic, a professor, and she has a ten point survival strategy uh, mm. for kind of living, navigating <laughs> racism, I suppose, uh, living in a white world. We've only got a couple of minute a mi minute left, but. What is there one thing that, that that helps you in your is there a survival strategy that you you've implemented or had to implement? I mean, just quickly say a few. I think uh, creates a critical mass. And if you can't do that in your actual environment, I've never worked in a workplace where there are a significant number of other black people or even minorities, but I've always created networks with other like-minded people where they existed and you know, 
would kind of consult them in real time. We have the technology to do that now, you know, WhatsApp groups and to feel supported and nurtured and held and that, you know, don't try and do it alone. It shouldn't be torture. It should, you need, you need that. You need a community around you. Communities are so important. So that's one thing I would say. And I would just say, don't shrink yourself. Just refuse to shrink yourself. Be unapologetic. Again, you need support and reinforcement and encouragement to do that sometimes. But whenever you feel something shrinking yourself, understand it and work out a coping mechanism. But the worst thing that you can do is just let it happen without noticing. Um, and so many people came have come up to me at book events or other places I've been working and said that you know, they spent a whole career doing what they thought they would be rewarded for, shrinking themselves, downplaying who they are, not being authentic to who they feel their identity is. And that at the end of it, nobody thanks you for doing that. And that what they lost was the chance to live in an authentic way. And I, you can't quantify that. It's so priceless. So uh, seek out communities and allies and read books and watch things by people who have done that and continue to be inspired by them. And that's what I do. F.Y. Hirsch, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much uh, for joining Such me. a joy to speak to you as well. Thank you so much. You can watch this talk on stream and you'll find the link in our show notes. Thanks for listening to Ideas at the House. I'm Edwina Throsby and I'll catch you next time. Thank you.